1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
0: Hello and welcome to the second of our Summer of Cheerful episodes, uh, bringing you five great interviews uh, while we have a little summer
2: break. But we've stockpiled some gold for you. Yeah, and I'm really excited that today we're talking to journalist and author Catelyn Moran. Her smash hit book, How to Be a Woman, came out all the way back in 2011. But she said she'd long strayed away from the question, what about men? But she got asked that by people when she was doing some of her live shows and so on. And she realized she couldn't ignore it any longer. Yeah. So she's decided to write a book about it,
0: which has made a splash specifically, actually, around something she kept hearing from teenage boys, which is the idea that women have a lot easier than men nowadays, which obviously is a provocative question. So Catelyn decided to dig into that.
2: And when we say it's made a splash, it's also had a bit of a backlash, I think it's fair to say. But we thought it would be quite good for people to be able to find out for themselves what they thought of her argument and what she had to say. And we tease out some of the nuance that maybe you don't get from social media in this interview. I should also say that there's some fruity language in this episode and some
0: adult themes. I really enjoyed watching your face during some of the discussion, because I think it's fair to say that we straight into some conversational areas that in six years we haven't touched upon. Indeed. So here is Catelyn talking to us about her new book, What About Men, which is out now.
1: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
0: There she is, Catelyn Moran. Hello, my darlings. Hello. You have excellent posture.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs> it's yoga and carrying quite a fat little cockapoo up and down the stairs. I think it's given me upper body strength.
0: And, and Cold water Swimming. So, I mean, I wanted to get this out of the way because Ed became an aficionado sometime within the last two or three years, and it is all he talks about. So it's so nice for him, I guess, to have somebody who can go
2: there with him. I mean, we can bore for Britain, Catelyn, can't we?
1: I know. It's great meeting a fellow cold water enthusiast because the people who don't swim are just bored, senseless by us, just going, I don't know if you've heard of this thing. It's called cold water swimming. And they're like, yeah, we've heard about it. Yeah, everyone talks about it. But it is addictive, right? And that's why we go on about it.
2: It is addictive to talk about it. I mean, that is definitely true. I think Stig Abel said that nobody who's ever been cold water swimming hasn't boasted about it. And that is 100% true.
1: How cold have you gone, Ed? What's the coldest? Two, two. I've done two. I think two is easier than six.
2: I tell you what I think most, and then I, I will shut up. I actually think doing it at two and at six, it like makes the summer absolutely brilliant because then eighteen or twenty feels like
1: oh yeah, it's the Mediterranean, isn't it?
2: balmy Mediterranean.
1: I'm one of those people who now complain that it's too warm. I'm like, I'm not getting the buzz. I'm not getting the buzz. Oh it needs to no, be <laughs> Ed, I'm intrigued to hear that you started cold water swimming. So, unbeknownst to you. You have been my husband's nemesis. You're you're called the uh, the million nemesis in our in our family, because you do the same park run as my husband. And for about three years he was pacing himself against you and uh only on one occasion has he managed to best you and he nearly killed himself uh, wow. on the last sleeping of the park run to get past you and had to spend three weeks in recovery. And then, and he's said, name, he was triumphant. He was like, finally, I'm, I'm level with middle band. This is good. And then you disappeared for about six weeks. And then you came back and you'd shaved three minutes off your PB. <laughs> and at that point, you totally gave up. And he wants to know, and I'm passing on a message from him, what did you do in that six week absence? You know
2: what? I think it was pre and post pandemic. I think I lost weight. And then it's that that then made me go faster. And I, I've sort of slightly fallen out of the park run habit. And so I'm worried that my 23-something PB is, is made now be unattainable.
1: Well, this is good news for my husband because he honestly, like, he, at the time he had undiagnosed incredibly high blood pressure. And the one time he managed to beat you, looking back now, when we found out at that point his blood pressure was 220 over 120, and he literally came back <laughs> covered in sweat, having nearly literally killed himself to beat you that time. You could have been responsible for his death. So if you have slowed down, it is good news for him and his heart.
2: (laughs) And indeed, it is one quite important chapter of the book, which is about sort of men never going to have their health problems looked at. And your husband seems to be a case in point, despite many, 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 many conversations with you about it.
1: Yeah, so this has been a huge... I'm doing the live tour at the moment, and the amount of women who've come up to me afterwards and just gone, that chapter, I'm literally showing it to my husband tomorrow. So I was talking to a GP... (laughs) He was saying that whenever a male patient comes into the surgery and she says, why are you here? They say, because my wife made me, because my partner made me. Whereas when you ask a woman that question, she simply lists her symptoms. And the 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 fear that men have or the reluctance that men have to go and get sort of something checked out, the sort of lack of self-care is quite terrifying. And I asked why it was that men are so reluctant. The, the common thing that you'll hear from men if a woman is nagging them to go and get a general health checkup is, I'm not going to go yet because I'm not in shape. So in about a year and a half's time, I'm going to lose two stone and I'm going to get sort of cardiovascular fitness and then I'll go and get my general health checkup, which, of course, is the wrong way around to do it. Like kind of like you, it's when you're at your least healthy is when you need to go and get that checkup.
2: I think there is research on this saying that this is the case, isn't it? There's something about men with partners are more likely to have conditions diagnosed than men without partners, I think.
1: Yeah, because we notice the massive badger-sized goiter hanging off their neck, and we say things like, that's been there for six months, it's not going to go away. I thought
0: you were about to get not all men, Ed, because as a hypochondriac, you, you don't relate to that at all. Well,
2: you and I are definitely the exception to Catelyn's rule, aren't we? Yeah, I, I, so,
0: so I will sometimes not go to the doctors, but it's because I don't, I don't want to go too much. I don't want to get flagged as a hypochondriac.
1: Well, this is what, it's sort of like I have had a small cohort of very determined people going, yes, not all men. Like, it is true that many will not go to the doctors for a variety of reasons, but there is a small, determined hardcore who go to the doctors all the time and are always on Google going, I think I've got handmaid's knee, or kind of like, I think I've got dengue fever.
0: Can I tell you the worst thing I ever went to the doc- doctors for? Oh, go on, yeah. I felt that the odour coming from my scrotum was out of the ordinary. <gasps> And and like looking back and thinking, what was I thinking? Because what am I expecting a doctor to do
2: you in didn't that situation? Do, no, you didn't do that.
1: Okay. Jane. I have many questions. So what was your normal scrotal bass note? Like kind of what would be a normal... Kind of I think smell? you're making
2: this up, Jeff,
0: aren't you? No, no, it's real. You can ask, you can ask Sarah. It was, I, I would say, not odourless. There was, uh, you know, it was definitely a bass note there. But there was some, something I felt like a little
2: yeasty. I mean, I just want to tell our listeners that I am cringing, like, very much. <laughs>
1: I'm taking screenshots of Ed's face at the moment because it's a series of the most agonised expressions that I've ever seen on a man's face. I'm
2: sorry to ask this question, but did Sarah sort of raise this?
0: <laughs> she didn't tell me to go and get a doctor to sniff my scrotum, but you know, she's not
2: backwards in coming forwards about that kind of thing. Can I just say, Callan, we have done 300 plus episodes. We've heard about Jeff's penis, but we have I'm afraid Jeff's scrotum has, I'm glad to say, been verboten. It's it's his first but, appearance on this podcast. But isn't that and let, great? That please after six let it be. Years. Please let it be the last.
1: Okay. <laughs> this pleases me though, because like for like the last ten years, because I am you know I, I write about the panoply of, of women experience stuff, and uh, and because I am so open about the vagina and the vulva chat, I for the last ten years I've just had women coming up to me telling me everything about their genitals, which pleases me, but. Honestly, one of the things I wanted most with this new book, What About Men, was to start having men having the same kind of silly, half-delighted, half-disgusted conversations that women have about their And
2: you've you've succeeded.
1: And it's worked. You're telling me how your balls smell. And we're only seven minutes in. I have succeeded.
0: Hang on, I would say smelled circa 2013, 2012. Oh, were you back to your kind of... The issue seems to have righted itself. I'm so happy. Look at Ed's
2: face. Ed is so uncomfortable. He's so desperate to get us off this subject. Catelyn, part of the thing in your book, and I think this is a really powerful chapter, is about the impact of porn. In some senses, it's obvious. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. But I think the way you talk about it is really important because you talk to a guy you call Sam. Do you want to just say a bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So when I wrote How to Be a Woman, I wrote about pornography from a women's point of view, about how sort of unpleasant and damaging it is, and also unrepresentative of female sexuality. Uh, you know, if you look at like the, the categories on any of the online porn websites, it's all kinds of women. So it's obviously made for the male gaze. There's nothing there for women. So I was saying, you know, I hope by the time that not only my girls, but also the young boys I know are of an age to watch pornography, that for instance, you know, the boy that I know called Sam, who's, you know, sort of like seven years old, we will have started making brilliant and more expressive and more feminist pornography that's joyful and tender and uplifting. And that will be what their sexual education is. And Sam is now 22 and I went on holiday with him uh, a couple of years ago. And he went, yeah, when How to Be a Woman came out in 2011 and you mentioned me and hoped that by the time I started watching porn, that there would be lovely feminist stuff. I laughed then because I was already watching it and I was eight. And I think as parents, we think, oh, maybe we'd have the conversation about porn when they're 13, but I want to be on the front foot and do it at 11 when they start secondary school. But your child's entry into the world of pornography is absolutely predicated on basically the naughtiest boy in your school. He's going to come at them with a mobile phone and go, look at this. This is weird, or this is disgusting, or this is horny. And the problem with that is that we don't know that our kids are watching it at that age, and we can't give them the talk that they need to have about pornography, which is, it's not a one-way thing. You don't just look at it and laugh or feel horrified or feel aroused. It looks into you because you are like soft, malleable clay at that age. And whatever sex you see is going to become your sexual imagination. It's going to become your sexual fantasies. And the stuff that you're seeing in pornography, it's called pornography for a reason. It's separate to sex. Sex is not like pornography. The extreme things that you're seeing, those are people at work who have contracts and are explaining what they're doing. And these are these are things that generally you're probably not going to be able to do in your real life. But of course, you don't know that at date. And you're literally having these chemical reactions. It's hardwiring into your brain. And Sam, when he was watching this stuff, he became incredibly troubled by it. He has OCD as well. And he became obsessively consumed by it and worried about it, addicted to it. He, he got erectile dysfunction after watching it. He couldn't have a functional sex life because whenever he was having sex in real life, he was just thinking about porn. He preferred porn to having real relationships. And in the end, he became so anxious and destroyed by what he'd seen, very extreme stuff, that he couldn't sleep at night and his dad was having to get into bed with him and hold him like a baby so that he would sleep. As parents, we don't, you know, we will grow up at an age where like, you know, pornography was something that you found seemingly growing in a hedgerow. And the stuff that our children are watching at eight is stuff that we still have not seen in our 40s and 50s. So we need to find a way to have this conversation with our kids far younger than we want. And I see my job as being able to start difficult conversations. Like kind of that's the point of every chapter that I write. So that you can basically blame me. You can just go, oh, Captain wrote this thing about porn. Like kind of like, what do you think about this?
2: And isn't it, I mean, in a way, because I've got two boys who are 12 and 14, and it made me think quite a lot about this. Isn't the problem, or part of the problem, that we talk about sex education for kids? Most of people's sex education, in inverted commas, comes from porn, but that's a terrible version of sex education.
1: Absolutely. Well, the stats are 97% of teenagers said that their primary sexual education was pornography. And also, Christ. by the time they're talking about it in school. And of course, the other thing is, as well, that, like, you know, in a lesson where you're talking about it, the kids are like, well, I've been watching it for years. You know, you're using really weird words to talk about this. Everyone's sniggering. Like, kind of like it's, you know, we don't really need sexual education. We need, like, kind of sexual gossip. So at the moment, we're in this thing where anything that happens with kids or adults, we're like, well, education needs to fix it. The schools need to fix it. Whatever it is, it should be fixed in schools. And this is a societal problem. We should be able to have these conversations as, you know, again, you know, I just looked at the template of feminism, like kind of there are comedians, female comedians talking about every aspect of, of sex from a woman's point of view, but I don't see men tackling it in the same way.
2: Talk to us a bit more, Catelyn, about your conversations with younger men for this book, or sort of how you had the conversations and what you picked up from the conversations.
1: Well, that was the BI So obviously I've been writing about women and girls for like the last 10, 15 years. But increasingly I was hearing people going, yes, but what about men? What about men?
2: Which is why you read the book fundamentally.
1: Yes, literally that. What about men? And then it was International Women's Day two years ago. And I was doing an event at a college, half boys, half girls, 15, 16 and it was international women's day so i thought we were here to talk about feminism and the boys weren't having it they basically hijacked it and said no why are we talking about girls and women it's like women are winning now and boys are losing it's harder to be a man now than it is a woman feminism has gone too far and they were angry and i'm always interested when you see a cohort of people who are angry because anger is just fear brought to the boil and it was like well why why are men scared of what has happened to women why why do they feel disadvantaged now so that was it. I was cleared the decks and I was like, I need to write this book. I need to find out what this is. And, I was, and first of all, I was like, well, how could men think women are winning? We still aren't. Like kind of economically, politically, socially, like, you know, the pay gap still exists. We're still underrepresented in business and in politics. And we know the terrible statistics that one in four of us will be sexually assaulted or raped. How are women winning? And then I was like, well, the only thing that women have got that men don't have is feminism. We've invented this thing over the last 150 years that means whatever problem a woman has, there is a solution out there. Someone's writing a blog about it. Someone's written a book about it. There'll be a comedy routine about it. And boys do not have that resource. There isn't a sense of progress and kind of taboo busting and kind of this removal of shame and an excitement. You know, we've grown up in the last 15 years, like these 15, 16-year-old boys that I was talking to, their fathers were understandably progressive feminist men who were like, yeah. This recent birth of feminist is a small and recent corrective to 10,000 years of patriarchy and Benny Hill chasing, you know, schoolgirls around a tree. We're not going to talk about men for a bit, but now their sons have grown up, and in all their lifetime, all they've heard is the future is female. Here's a list of 50 women who are going to change the world toxic masculinity, the patriarchy, typical men, typical straight white men. And you suddenly realize that's all these boys have ever heard. They don't have this perspective of how recent it is, and so into that void, the first person in their lifetime, who stood up and gone, actually, boys are great. You can never have too much masculinity. I'm going to stand up for the straight white boys is Andrew Tate. And that's why when I talk to... Every, I do not know a single school in this country that has not had to have a staff meeting about talking about the way that he's you know, become a massive problem in radicalizing young men. They disrupt lessons. Female teachers having homework handed back to them by boys that have make me a sandwich written on the bottom. Like, you should not be teaching me. You're a woman. Male teachers being asked... You let your wife go out on her own, sir.
2: Just say a little bit more about Andrew Tate and what people have picked up from him and so on, just for those who don't know.
1: Pretty much any parent or teacher uh, or anyone who works in support services will have had to have a crash course in him because he sort of came onto sort of adults' radars about a year and a half, two years ago. So he was a former kickboxing champion. He went on Big Brother and then was removed from the Big Brother house when videos of him choking a girlfriend surfaced, which he said was consensual. Basically, he's opened a kind of academy for young men where he gives them ostensibly business advice, but it's his toxic misogyny that is the most worrying thing. So he said that he's absolutely misogynist. He says that uh, women are at their best between 18 and 25, and then after that, they're all used up. They've had too much sex, and you must discard them. He has 22 girlfriends who've had their names tattooed on him, and he runs a sex cam operation in Romania. He moved to Romania because he said the laws were laxer there, and they allow you to get on with what you want. And he's been uh, accused of multiple counts of sex trafficking. And he is not the solution for teenage boys. His belief is that the anxiety and depression and insecurity that young men feel at the moment is because women have now gained power over men. And that what would solve these boys' heartache is if men now regained power over women. And women went back to just sort of being at home and being used for sex and raising children. And this is a bad offer to young men. Because power never cures your anxiety or depressions or feeling about yourself. What these young men actually need is empowerment. You know, they need to feel part of the movement. They need to be able to talk about their feelings. They need to be able to feel that they've got jobs for them. They need to feel that kind of like being a boy or a man is not, an, you know, a shameful or embarrassing thing to be. And that's what feminism has done for women. We have not gained power over men. We have gained empowerment to learn the skills that have allowed us to, you know, move towards equality.
2: Just on the list of people who write about boys and men, talk to us about Jordan Peterson.
1: Yes. So, I, for the last couple of years, I had loads of people going, "What do you think about Jordan B. Peterson? He's got interesting ideas. Like, I, I think he's like genuinely quite fascinating and intelligent. What do you think of him?" So, I finally dipped into his of well aware that Time Magazine had called him the most important intellectual of our generation, and that he wears a suit and he's Canadian and he appears to be reasonable. And as uh, someone raised on the council estate, who didn't even go to school, let alone university. I was surprised to find that halfway through his book, I was going, this is not an intellectual. (laughs) This is not the cleverest man of our time. This is a very depressive, fundamentalist Christian who is deeply misogynist and is not giving good advice to young boys. Like, I think if you're going to give life advice, uh, you know, his book is called 12 Rules for Life. Then you should be a happy person who looks like they're having a great life. And he doesn't. I listed in the book the amount of times he says things like life is suffering life is misery this earth is hell manifest like kind of he has a very bleak nihilistic view of the world and when it comes to women the subtitle to 12 Rules to Life is an antidote to chaos and we find out sort of halfway through the book what his definition of chaos is and it's women it's feminine energy whereas men are about orderliness and kind of you know structure and civilization
2: I am a particular agent of chaos as you will know from 2015
1: (laughs) So the book is aimed at you. Did you take it <laughs> exactly, personally? It was just going, you are I an did. antidote I did. to care. exactly.
0: <laughs> so so what's interesting there, Catelyn, is you're identifying it as a failure to have parallel conversations inspired by that wave of feminism that you were part of has left a gap for these people to define what masculinity is.
1: Hugely. There are stats like women buy 80% of books. And I had this massive moment where I went into a bookshop. Every bookshop has a woman section. You know, women, like feminism, motherhood, adolescence. There is no man section. Like we're not used to writing about men as a category, which is why I think I've had a lot of pushback, which is the polite word, in the last week on social media. I don't think men are used to being, basically having some kind of titty David Attenborough like me turning up and going, hmm, let's look at men as a species. (laughs) Let's see what their problems are. And so when someone like Jordan B. Peterson comes along, Because men aren't used to reading self-help books in the way that women are, they weren't really able to analyze it and see it for the, frankly, horseshit that it is. I mean, one of my big rules in life is never trust a man. He takes a single species from the animal kingdom and extrapolates what humans are supposed to be like off the back of it. So Jordan B. Peterson's lobster theory, which is basically that men need to be aggressive and must never lose, because when a lobster loses in a fight a chemical reaction happens in its brain where its brain liquefies and it becomes basically slightly brain damaged and beta forever. And he goes, and this is what happens with men. This is why men must be aggressive and never lose a fight. Now, first of all, we diverged from lobsters 800 million years ago. Secondly, we're obviously very different from lobsters. We don't piss out of our eyes and we don't have big, delicious hands. And thirdly, if human beings did genuinely have their brains liquefy and become brain damaged every time they lost, then the Olympics would be a bloodbath and even the average family Christmas game of Boggle would be a human rights issue. So you cannot extrapolate from the behaviours of lobsters anything to do with humanity whatsoever. And yet there are Jordan B. Peterson lobster hoodies. Like people will just, you know, when you go online, it's like Jordan B. Peterson's lobster guy 368 is arguing with you. And it's like, none of this makes sense. It's just horseshit.
2: Planning for your next trip? Maybe part of the pushback you've had, and you did draw attention to this pushback, is people saying, hang on, there are men who aren't Jordan B. Peterson or Andrew Tate who write for young men. And presumably you would acknowledge that. The point is you're looking at who some of the dominant people are. Is that a fair summary?
1: Hugely. So look, I've had a lot of like, it's the vanity of small differences. And it's obviously something that happens a lot on the liberal left. But of course, there's, at the beginning of the book, there's just a cohort of facts that I just put out, which is why the word heartbreaking is the most recurrent one unexpectedly in this book. And it's that boys are more likely to be medicated at school for disruptive behavior. They're more likely to be excluded from school. They're more likely to join a gang or become addicted to drugs, alcohol or pornography. They make up the majority of the prison population. They make up the majority of the homeless population. And the leading cause of death for men under the age of 50 is suicide. And all these things tie in together, particularly with that suicide statistic. So even if you are emotionally illiterate and feel that you don't need to read my book, your dad you've got a cousin, there's someone you know at work who genuinely struggles with talking about these things. It's ridiculous to pretend that there isn't a problem there. You know, one in five men say they have no close friends. You know, kind of like the the statistics on loneliness, um, you know, the the lack of ability for men to feel they have the kind of network that women do when they have a problem is very palpable.
2: And this is going to probably come out the wrong way, but is the underlying truth of your thesis in this book that... What we've seen in the last 20, 30, 40 years is a transformation of the image and role of women in society. But, you know, I think there's an expression about this in relation to, like, sharing of parenting and men at home and all that. You know, like, the second shift hasn't happened, which is the the dominant view of men's role in society remains very entrenched in what it would have been 20, 30, 40 years ago, too entrenched.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions to this. But like, if you look at the last 150 years, the definition of a woman and what we expect for her life has changed. Absolutely. You know, 150 years ago, we couldn't own property. We we became the property of our fathers and then our husbands. You know, we couldn't start our businesses. We couldn't get a loan in our name. Marital rape was still legal in this country until the 1990s. But what women have done over the last 150 years is identify the problems of their gender in really enjoyable bitching sessions and then come up with solutions to it. And consequently, the the possibilities of being a woman are now endless. We have all these brilliant role models. We're in space. We're ruling countries. We wear trousers. We have contraception. We've taken things that are traditionally seen as male and we have gone, there's no reason why these should be male. Let's have them. These are useful to us and they empower us and make us feel good. Men have not taken these things that would be traditionally seen as female.
2: But to be clear, you're not saying that about all men.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, just things like, you know, things with parenting. Like, so for instance, you know, lots of men are going like, I'm a good dad. I think I'm I'm an equal parent. Yeah, you are. But like, we can see societally that that is not all dads. Mumsnet is a huge political force. Every sort of potential prime minister must go and talk to Mumsnet. There is a dad's net, which in itself is a surprise, but they have so few people using it. They offer a crate of beer to anybody who joins up as a member. You know, It's very common that men's first marriages will break up, and then they marry again, have a second family, and then they go, this time around, I'm there for the kids. This time around, I'm doing the nappies. This time around, I'm enjoying them. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to me that we're still at a point socially where men are so busy working, and society is structured in such a way because of paternity leave and economics, that the first time around when you're a young man, you don't get to be a parent properly. And you have to wait with all the heartbreak and all the social disruption that it takes you have to be divorced and start again before you can finally actually do the necessary stuff of the heart and be a fully engaged parent. So these are big structural problems with being a fully engaged father that, you know, feminism has really tried to tackle for women, but there is no conversation about men.
0: I think me and Ed struggle sometimes because I think we both bulk at the idea of masculinity. In a certain way, I think it's so sort of antithetical to to, to both of us to define ourselves as masculine. We did an episode on it and somebody asked us to name male role models where where the fact that there were men were part of that. We really struggled.
1: Well, that makes me sad because like there is a cohort of feminism that argues that extreme femininity is kind of lesser. I think extreme femininity is just as brilliant and defendable and fabulous as extreme masculinity. There's no reason why any aspect of being masculine should be seen as lesser.
2: It's so interesting when you say extreme femininity and then extreme masculinity. Extreme masculinity provokes a very different reaction in me. Extreme masculinity sounds bad. Doesn't it? I suppose it depends what you mean by extreme masculinity. I suppose if you're meaning Andrew Tate, then it's a different kettle of fish, yeah.
1: Well, exactly. And and the, and the thing is, it's all about who claims that ground and defines it. And at the moment, the only people who are interested in sort of claiming and defining extreme masculinity tend to have a sort of darker sort of more disruptive view of it. But like, you know, I, I come from a family where they're just huge Welsh miners who are like, you know, down the mines. And then at the weekend, they would give their wives a break and you'd wrap the babies up in the shawl and all the granddads and the dads would take the babies out for a walk while the mums had a rest. You know, the, the, the working class extreme masculinity that I grew up with was, you know, tough and hard and amazing, but also... You know, in the words of my, my Welsh nana, just softer shit with the babies, like kind of like, you know, they just sort of love their wives. So I'm just interested in seeing, you know, detoxifying the idea of masculinity.
0: I wonder if there's a feeling like amongst nerdy men that, that you know, you talk about the anger and the defensiveness coming from fear, which I think is an extrapolation of um, Yoda, perhaps. But I wonder if there's a type of nerdy man who feels so far removed from what masculinity Uh, stereotypically is, that they become defensive when people start talking about it because they feel so different to that.
1: Oh, hugely, because you've... I mean, for men of my generation, you had to define yourself against that. Like, you go to school, you land there first day and the conversation's about football and, like, kind of, we don't do girl things... And so like the men of my generation, my husband's generation, becoming like a nerdy indie boy wearing a cardigan, being sort of very gentle and sweet was it, when it was in itself a massive sort of rebellion against those traditional roles of masculinity. There's a bit at the end of the book where I kind of make a plea to men just going, who is it that you are being this man for? Like whose approval is it you are seeking? Whose disapproval is it that you fear? Like whoever it was that you were trying to impress or rebel against is long gone or dead now. And it's just sort of in the way that women have sort of like really examined over and over again, possibly to the point of men being bored, what being a woman is. There's just a bit more fun and and joy to be had, I think, in looking at what a man is and just going, well, what would work? What do I want? Like kind of what, what would make me happy?
0: And is part of it, you know, making sure that the conversations about defining masculinity include the cardigan wearers.
1: Oh, hugely. Like, you know, they're a very important part because like I'm strictly the belief, particularly in a social media age where kind of like everything must be split into a binary. Everybody has to take a team on whatever it is. But, you know, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that most people are very sort of quiet centrists just watching all of this, just going, well, I'm not on one team or the other. So I'm just not going to say anything at all because it looks shouty and angry out there. Um so, you know, I'd be interested to see what, as they say in uh, the thick of it, the quiet bat people who don't normally speak <laughs> would actually say if there was a, a quiet, reasonable center ground where you could have a relaxed conversation. And that was very much the intention of this book. Like I, I observed that that worked quite well for women when I wrote How to Be a Woman. Like it was, you know, the, the feminism wars were quite intense when I wrote this book and it was difficult to start a fun, light hearted, you know, silly conversation about being a woman. And uh, that was what I wanted to do with how to be a woman. And I just think just there's something I don't want to be part of any revolution or change that isn't a bit silly and relaxed and can't sort of pivot from being very sincere and honest, to just making silly jokes about what it is to be a human being, because that's where we finally feel safe enough to say these things that we've been keeping quiet.
2: And why do you think it's provoked the reaction that you've had? You say that on your tour, which you're in the middle of, you've had really good reaction and, you know, from men and women, but it's obviously provoked another reaction. Why do you think that is?
1: Oh, hugely. So, yeah, I mean, first of all, social media is just there for a fight, yeah. isn't it? Like, kind of, I would never yeah. trust a serious conversation to social media because it is the gamification of conversation. But, A, most of the reaction was before anyone had read it. So, I think feminists presumed that I'd gone, ha ha, screw women, I'm joining the men's team now. Very much not that. This is the extension of my feminism you can't fix the girls until you fix the boys. I just had loads of messages from male writers and comedians and people in the public eye, private messages going, I have been thinking about writing a book like this for years, but I was just aware that I would be stoned to death if I put my head above the parapet. Like kind of like, you've been very brave, which hugely alarmed me because I go out of my way usually to do nothing brave at all. I think men aren't used to being written about as a class in the way that women are. And yeah, I don't know, maybe slightly wounded ego, the vanity of small differences. Uh, the fact that I am trying to just chill everybody out really weirdly in 2023. If you go, calm down, everyone, let's relax. That seems to make people more angry.
0: <laughs> when you reflect on how to be a woman
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and like the legacy of it and all the conversations you've had and all the tweets and all the email and the difference that it's made in people's lives, because, because that's happening like one tweet or one comment at the time, you don't get a chance to sort of like, think about what a huge thing that was do, do you ever do that or would it send you mad
1: it, it's weird. i was having this conversation yesterday because like the, the you know all the live events i get women literally shaking and crying going you know you saved my life like kind of i feel that you have raised me like you you stopped me feeling shame you made me feel normal and on a very deep level you can't acknowledge that because like if you're just leading a normal life, especially if you're writing on your own, like if I sat there every day going, I've saved lives and maybe I will save more with what I write now. That would just be, you would just become weird and maybe a bit like Bombing. although I love Bonnet, but like I, I, I couldn't have that level of belief in changing lives. But what I do see is a mandate, like kind of like you just get people going, yeah, it's working for me, carry on.
2: Let's end with some optimism, Carolyn.
1: Oh, I can give you endless optimism. I mean, I am an absolutely berserk optimist, like kind of like to the point of being demented and enraging the people around me. I just genuinely do believe that most people are good and want things to be better, if not for themselves, then for their children. And I also, the, the thing that gives me hope about this book, and particularly boys who I think are troubled at the moment and you know don't have the kind of panoply of role models and stuff that women have, is that, that what worked in feminism was giving women hope and joy. Feminism stopped being this dutiful, fibrous intellectual pursuit that you sort of did if you were a good person or an intellectual person and just became this joyous, fun, pop cultural moment where you've got Beyonce quoting Chimamanda Ngozi and Ditchie on stage and kind of like people wearing I'm a feminist t shirts That's where things change when they stop being an academic or intellectual pursuit and it just becomes a conversation in the pub or on a bus or it's a pop song or it's in a movie. And I want that kind of sense of joy and transformation for our boys now that we've given our girls in the last 15 years. And I really hope from all the mums that I'm meeting, the teachers I'm meeting, the people in support services, they're just going, yes, that is what we need. I think there is a slight sense of despair in young boys at the moment, even saying straight white man. I've been saying it on stage every night for the last week now, and I still feel uncomfortable saying it because it usually starts a problematic conversation where someone's about to be racist or sexist or homophobic like kind of it's a category that has a lot of shame and guilt associated around it now and if you can't say i'm a straight white man without immediately getting some kind of judgment on you or or being supposed that the conversation is going to get difficult no wonder these boys have this shame and fear and anger in them boys need to be able to describe themselves with the same hope and effervescence and joy that women do why would we not want our boys to have that kind of that hope and joy and uplift and expanding of the lexicon that we've given to our teenage girls.
2: Well, look, Catelyn Moran, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. The book is What About Men? And it is out now. Would you be up for a, a race, like a sprint,
1: you versus Catelyn's husband, Pete? Oh, he would love it. It'll kill him. But, Ed, please, could you just could you just throw the race, though? And like, kind of, like, just give him just once. We could run
2: together <laughs> and cross the line Arm in arm in a symbol of modern masculinity.
1: (laughs) That would be beautiful. I'm so up for that. Yes, let's do that. Okay, that's a date. See you at Park Run in two weeks' time. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
0: Thank you for listening to this summer cheerful conversation. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our iDents, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff
2: Lloyd. And this has been Summer Lovin' Reasons to Be Cheerful.